you know, it's like however you get into bourbon is fine and it's good. But yeah, the historical side gets gets old after a while, I would think. No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. Well, we're back with the roundtable. It's our monthly show where we look at new and interesting angles that are happening in our bourbon ecosystem. We all know that marketing plays a pretty big role in whiskey. There always needs to be a story that sells the brand. And last week, an article in Vine Pair sparked a question for us as to whether or not you need heritage for American whiskey. So how important is it to have a deep lineage to bourbon? And is that necessary for customer appeal? And in the second half of the show, we break down finished bourbons and why in the past few years we have seen a big surge in new ones, and what makes that attractive to more consumers. With that, enjoy this week's episode, and now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Adam Lichtenstein, I hope I said that right, Patreon member who writes me on fredminnick.com. What's the history of availability of barrel-proof bourbons? Ooh, we're going to get in the weeds here, Adam. I really love this. So uh, historically, bourbon brands were not proponents of putting out barrel-proof products. And it, it had a it had a bit of a responsibility reasoning for it. Ration, the rationale was that they didn't want to put whiskey out that would get people really drunk really fast because they were still on the heels of Prohibition. You know, while Prohibition ends in 1933, the industry's back on its feet by 1935. The proponents of Prohibition, the temperance women, uh, the ev- evangelicals, the all the people who were really were against drinking alcohol, they never went away. They still try to pick and find ways to diminish the sale of alcohol and at every turn. And today there are still dry counties across the country. And so the industry kind of like uh, worked together to minimize their target. And one of those things was not having widespread uh, cash strength or barrel proof. Now, there were certainly barrel proof products out, uh, Weller Foolproof being the most famous one back in the you know 40s to 1960s. Um, and that, you know, had its own. But that was kind of that was marketed as more like a. Uh, like a cognac of the time. So it was not marketed as like, a, you know, get drunk on this kind of thing. So uh, while they existed, they were not really popular. But the the contemporary movement of cash strength products was, was really started by two products. Uh, and that was Booker's and Noah's Mill. Noah's Mill from Willet and Booker's in the 1980s were both like really created for the Japanese market and um, created, you know, really nice followings in the United States as well. Wild Turkey comes out with Rare Breed. Uh, You start seeing a little trickle in of other uh, cash strength products, but it was just kind of like, you know, still like little tiny bubbles. And even up until the mid-2000s, Brown Foreman, you know, they still kind of had the old school view that... uh, cash strength products would be bad for the industry. And so they 
I've got recordings of people from Brown Foreman talking about how barrel proof was not was was not conducive for the industry, was not good for the industry. And of course, the market has changed so much since then that the you know old Forster 115 proof, you know, there's Jack uh, Jack Daniels barrel proof. So Brown Foreman's got many products in the in the barrel proof world. So that's that's a little bit of it. I mean, it's still what we're seeing now is the it's still relatively new for the industry, but I think we've kind of hit the hit the ceiling with it because barrel proof can mask a lot of flaws. Like a lot of people cannot taste, you know, mustiness if it's at 120, 25 proof. And that's that's the truth. So if you have bad whiskey, you buy a bunch of bad whiskey from a wholesaler, you bottle it at barrel proof, the chances are people will like it. But if you add water to it, you know, you can taste the flaws all day long. So Barrel proof, it can be very deceiving. You got to train your palate to understand, you know, what flaws will taste like at 125 proof. But, you know, it it, it takes time. But that's going to do it for this week's uh, Above the Char. If you want to be like Adam, hit me up on fredminnick.com. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Get 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 000 from their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring green for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome, everybody. We are back with... Bourbon Community Roundtable number 70. Yes, we've done this for a few years now, so we know what we're doing, but we've got a good potpourri of topics. This is always one of the, probably the one of the most favorite podcasts that we love to be able to do, one of those epic shows, only because we have to invite our good friends here and kind of talk about the soup du jour. What are the hot topics of things that I've been able to conjure up in the past 24 hours that we can kind of talk about? But there's always a good mix of things that we can we can dive into and of course, Ryan's, or sorry, I say Ryan's here. Fred's out this week because he's coming back from St. Lucia. He's actually went on PTO for once and actually put his out of office on. So he didn't, he didn't respond to emails, which is very, very rare for somebody that's an entrepreneur. I know 
Ryan, it's probably hard for you to turn your out of office on every once in a while as well. Yeah, I've done that. And then you, you quickly realize like they just build up even more and it creates for a worse, <laughs> like time to try to catch up from all the stuff you put your put on hold, but it didn't definitely didn't slow down Fred's Instagram account though. I mean, I think he, <laughs> I think he tripled down on what he used to do in emails. Uh, he, he made up for in- Instagram stories. So no, I'm glad he had a good time. It looked like he had an awesome time with his family and I've never been to St. Lucia, but it looks really nice. I think he actually picked a few rum barrels while I was there, if I'm yeah. not mistaken, too. Yeah, I think I saw that, too. Um, so hopefully we get to ch- he shares those with us one day. Probably not. <laughs> well, who knows? <laughs> we'll find out. We'll see. We'll see if he's a real part of this trio. If not, that's we'll right. Have to, yeah, we'll have to boot him out somehow. Vote him off the island, if you will. Yep. All right. But before we get into it, we've got our usual crew here. So let's go ahead and start with a quick round of introduction. So we'll start with the person to my right here, which is Nick from Breaking. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. Uh, Good to see you guys again. Nick from Breaking Bourbon here. Uh, Check us out on Breaking Bourbon. And um, look, man, I am uh, I'm going to start by saying I am drinking some of Blake's uh, seal box, his first seal box mix here, which I have not had in a while. Um, So enjoying that tonight. Hopefully everybody has a glass in hand and uh, looking forward to the show. I'm actually looking forward to the seal box remix coming up, which is that that champagne finish one you got kind of going on. Blake, yeah. talk about that the, one, man. I'm still the waiting on the first tr- one. So, yeah, oh, that's true. I do owe you a <laughs> bottle. I started getting better about that. But so batch three will be, and it's not just like randomly selected finishes. So the, the Sealbach cocktail, for those who don't know, because it's not my favorite cocktail either. It's, <laughs> it's, Kentucky- it's a better reason to come out with a huge release. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, we did it better. We, like we recreated it in a good way. So the Sealbach cocktail is, it's a uh, Kentucky bourbon, triple sec bitters, and then topped with champagne. So what we did was we got a Kentucky bourbon blend. So there's, there's a uh, four year, it ends up being 10 months old, four year, 10 months, and then a 15 year old barrel, blended together and then we put that in triple sec barrels and champagne barrels and blended it all back together so it's actually a lot of fun to see you know triple sec is one that's kind of slowly rolling out uh at a few places but both triple sec and champagne you don't see a lot and so it's cool to kind of play around with and yeah i think it turned out well so i'm excited I'll be quite honest with you i didn't know that triple sec went in barrels until i saw this release well, yeah. so there's yeah, there's a couple of things on that. So there are very few producers. Oh, here that, we go. They, no, there are very few flavors, producers. Flavor packets and the asterisks. No, 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 there's no, no, asterisks all over behind Blake. I have Blake there. the the asterisks. The asterisks is only on the champagne. So you know, yes, it is still wine that goes into a barrel to age in the champagne region, and then it becomes champagne because you know it's it it's not uh, carbonated or sparkling in the barrel. So I, I think I took a hit for that on Twitter, but uh, you know, we admit to it. It, it is wine that is becoming champagne, but the triple sec is there just are a few producers that do use barrel aging, massive 60 gallon, um, barrels. So, um, is it the Kuiper? Uh, they actually nah. wouldn't tell me. Yeah. They, uh, apparently non-disclosure agreements happen in the, uh, liqueur and wine world as well, because it, he was like, well, you know, if you know your champagnes, you could probably figure it out. I'm like, well, good news. I don't. So <laughs> I will not be able to figure it out. <laughs> like mystery is going to remain. <laughs> yeah, yeah there is. <laughs> If anybody out there knows champagne, well, it's uh, I, f- I forget the the part of champagne, but not a ton of people using uh, 
Pinot Meunier or whatever the third varietal of of grapes that can be used in champagne. Yeah, so not a ton of people using that, but yeah, well, uh, maybe we'll your maybe that'll it. be my research. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, but. the Pinot Pinot Meunier. I'm going to have you stand in for me on this week in bourbon. And every every time I need some sort of French word that needs to be spoken. Oh, I'm definitely I, probably saying it wrong, but I butcher him every time. So it's what I need somebody like there. All right. Well, thank there, Blake uh, and Brian. Wrap it up here for us. Yeah. I think happy to be on number 70. Brian with uh, Sipping Corn. Find me there and at Bourbon Justice, all the socials. Um, excited to hear more about Blake's uh, new concoction. And uh, and I've got one particular line on the article that you, that we're talking about that I've circled and underlined. I'm I'm ready for this one. Oh, nice. excited. I like it. I like it. Well, we'll, we'll with Blake's thing, we're going to kind of save that for the second half of the show because we'll talk about finished bourbons. But the, the top of the show, I kind of want to talk about this. It was a great article that came out by Vine Pair recently, and it was titled, An American Whiskey is Heritage Everything. And the one thing we all love to talk about here is bourbon and marketing and how they really all kind of come together. And honestly, how marketing is really 50% of the battle half the day. So in this article is by Julia Bauer. She says that an American whiskey marketing is about as old as some brands claim to be. And then history always seems to be at the front and center. And that could be coming from prohibition or there's just some lineage or family genes that go into distilling. Colin Spillman, the co-founder and head distiller of Brooklyn's Kings County Distillery, he said that the reason I got interested in distilling in the first place is because I noticed that in Kentucky, there's a lot of storytelling around history, but none of it had any credibility. And it was largely these giant corporations, many of them not even based in the United States, that misunderstand their own brands. And that article goes on to talk about that Van Winkles not needing any marketing, Uncle Nearest and its roots, how Bardstown Bourbon Company is creating the modern, authentic bourbon experience. So I kind of want to break this down into a few questions. And the first one is taken directly from the article. And that is to talk about without history, is there a story to tell? So I'll, I'll kind of put it out to the group. So when you start thinking about the brands that you kind of see and the story that you kind of have to, to know about, what resonates more? Is it the ones that have a history and the story or ones that can kind of maybe conjure something up out of, out of a, what they're doing right now? Well, I think that's what we're seeing with the consumer diving more into the details of the actual production. You know, th there's a lot of different ways to tell a story and that's, kind of you know been center of what we do at sealbox is like hey we don't need some made up historic thing to you know sell bourbon like we can talk about how old it is the mash build the blending process is the distillation how column stills are different than pot stills how you know aging in a single level warehouse is different than aging in a nine level warehouse so i think the the options are actually endless it nobody just was I don't want to say they weren't creative enough, but they didn't have to think outside the box on a lot of that. Um, and now you've got people like Bartstown Bourbon Company, New Riff, uh, Castle and Key, all these. I mean, even Castle and Key brings out the kind of the, the history, but they talk a lot about their process. So I think it's just, you know, what people are into today. They want to dive deeper and kind of what Colin said in that article where, uh, you know, these things going about 25 or 20 to 25 year cycles. And so I think we've got a long way to go of people just caring more about the production process, the blending process, without even caring whether it was the first distillery in that town of since prohibition or something, you know. Um, so, I, I mean, I love that kind of stuff. And I, I think it is more important for what you're tasting. Yeah. So um, 
I, I gotta, I gotta say, you know, there's, when you think about the competition for people's attention, there's a lot of different ways to get that. And I think history is one of them. And you see the bigger brands with a lot of money that can put a lot behind that history. And if you go deeper and deeper and deeper, it's there. But at the end of the day, I think it's just, it's getting people's attention. That's the important thing. And if you get their attention with a good product or just an interesting story, even if it's newer, I mean, I, I kind of thinking of a couple high West is one that comes to mind. I've actually kind of come away from their story a little bit, but back in kind of the Dave Perkins days, they were doing some interesting things that really kind of drew me to them and what they were doing with blending that was kind of unique at the time. And now if you enter, I think if you enter the space, everything seems new and everything kind of seems, you know, like it has some kind of history. You don't really realize right away, you know, you don't really necessarily know who, you know, E.H. Taylor is or George T. Stagg. You just know that's something that's very hard to get, you know, in that sense. And it's not until you kind of dig deeper and deeper and deeper that the history kind of emerges. And then you, you know, you do the deep dives, like, and I'm, I'm looking forward to what Brian has to say on this, because I know he's got some really insightful things. He's done some really deep dives on the history, but that's kind of like the the layers you start peeling back that, yeah, at some point with some of the brands that don't have it, you're going to kind of reach the end of the layers and it comes to just the people that are there and the product that's there. I think that's okay. You know, there's only so much, there's only so many history, historic distilleries out there. So, you know, some people just have to make their own history. You're right, Nick. I mean, to, to lean in that to just a little bit more, you think about Buffalo Trace, what they do, that particular grounds have seen, uh, what, decades of, uh, of you know, basically concrete going on top of it, digging it up and then like, oh my God, there's a whole other distillery underneath here, right? So they have a lot of stories that they can tell just surrounding the history. They've got the people that are on the labels. You said uh, Colonel Taylor, Elmer T. Lee, uh, Blanton. I mean, all these people that were able to sort of be the names and the people that are trying to they're trying to be around so at that point people are kind of gravitating toward it. they they gravitate towards the name and that means that there's a history behind it so it's really hard for them to sit there and say like oh we're building the the modern bourbon because a lot of the stuff that they're doing is all based in history so i i look at that and i say yes they lean in on that because there's a story to tell and people that want to go you get a, a good history lesson while you're at it and I know that Ryan and I, we've talked about this in an episode that we did for Behind the Pursuit, kind of talking about, well, if you don't have, if you're an NDP per se, you don't really have much of a story to tell Like for us. Like we don't have a story to tell. So how do we create that story? How do we create that experience that people can kind of gravitate towards? And it does get a little bit harder if you don't have the history aspect, because that is something that people are are looking at. They want to see exactly oh, this has been around for X number of years. It was lost during Prohibition. It came back. There's a romanticized aspect to it that it's really hard for others to kind of gravitate towards. And so I feel that you are in a, a better position when you do have some sort of historical significance that you can rest on because there is, you just you just have it in your kind of back pocket because, you know, somebody's great granddaddy had the recipe to whatever. And then all of a sudden there's a different source that's in there. It doesn't matter. There's the story that is still connecting at the end of the day. And it, it, to, to just kind of like kind of finish this thought as well is you have to start thinking about how does that modern brand start changing the consumer aspect and they have to really take it in a much different direction. Bartstown Bourbon Company is a great example because they don't lean on the history. They lean on creating that authentic modern experience. 
personally, you look at Willett, a lot of us, we all know that Willett has a history, but if you go to Willett, they don't sit there and tell you all about the history. And, you know, there, there might be a little bit of the history that's on the tour, but it's, it's really not about that. People care about their bourbon today, not what they had built over, uh, you know, decades or anything like that. So I think they're a little bit more, I guess you can say falling into the, the BBC realm more or less so than the sort of the history realm. Yeah, but they were built on some his, some whiskey with some fantastic history, and that's where they kind of got their lore from Willet, you know, into, you know, it's it, it's one of those scarcity things. It just There's just not much to go around, and people love ca- scarcity, and they also love connection, and that's what, you know, we're in a connection economy, you know, Seth Godin says, and, um, you know, whatever consumers can connect to, whether that's history or get fascinated with the process or the blenders or the sourcing of it. There, there's something you have to find that connects with consumers. That's true, transparent, authentic, you know, not that it's something that's made up because you can have a cool history, but then, you know, if you're whiskey and you know, you, you, you get lucky and you source some really good old barrels for your first release, but then you don't, you know, you run out of those and then you're scrambling and you're coming out with a four to five year old whiskey and you're playing on that history again. I, I just don't think it's going to connect you know, moving forward. But, um, I think that's why, you know, you talk about the historical side. I think that's why Bardstown bourbon company really went after green river because not only from the contract side, but green river has that romantic DSP number five. I think it's five, you know, it has that historical pre-prohibition cool old looking bottle, you know, like it's something that they can like really, you know, pay homage to Kentucky, you know, the history of Kentucky whiskey, and bourbon. Um, whereas, you know, their new brand is, it's really connecting with collaborations and working with different industries, trying to like break into, you know, the wine industry or, or, the, or, you know, the wine drinkers or beer drinkers or this or that really trying to like find those fringes and bring them as new consumers and other products. And so it's, it's really about building connection, but having that history helps, but it only gets you so far. You got to have the good whiskey in the bottle and continue to, to deliver on results in that way. Yeah, I'm going to give a shout out, shout out to OITD that said, well, it's history is built on egg salad sandwiches because that was <laughs> a pretty awesome comment. That's very true. Yeah. But, and, and that's, I think we're moving that way, but kind of like Ryan said, you can't lose, lose track of the fact that people do like that side of things. You know, um, you, you look at green river and their packaging looks phenomenal and it sells bottles and it's good marketing. So I think it's a balance. So, you know, Brian, go ahead and give us the right answer. Yeah. And, uh, no, no. <laughs> That's right. Not the right answer. Just, just a We saved the best for last. On it. So, so history as, as motivation for marketing has actually been a little bit of a roller coaster because it, it didn't matter early on at all how historical you were because things had sucked in the old days. And then it, you got into this whole marketing idea where things had to be made the old way. They had to be hand uh hand stirred and you needed a pot still and you didn't like the the new column still and then prohibition hits and it's all you know marketing's out the out the window but fast forward to current day infatuation with history that really didn't start until woodford reserve released uh its its first bottle in 96 or or something along the that time frame before then think of the think of the ads everything was trying to be New, they were trying to turn to to in the seventies to light whiskey. The all the old crow ads were kind of dispensing with their legitimate history, 
and they were trying to be, you know, co competition to light blended scotch and those sorts of things. So history didn't really come back into the fold until 96. And then when Woodford did it so spectacularly, that's why everybody thought, hey, we need history too. And that's why Ridgewood Reserve came out of the, uh, became a legend overnight from marketers, you know, making things up to sound like you had history. And that's when E.H. Uh, Taylor, remember, wasn't a wasn't a popular brand at the time. It's it was bottom shelf. There was no such thing as as stag. Buffalo Trace was was using current names. You know, they were using the Blanton name and the, using the Elmer T. Lee name. They weren't going back to the long history that they had on that property until it kind of turned. So that's really, I think, a phenomenon if, for the last twenty five years is this push for history. Now, now I love it because I'm a history nerd and I like digging into that history and I've taken as deep of a dive as, as anyone into that history, but I think it's relatively new. So I like this, this switch in the last maybe three years, you know, people like Blake coming on. Um, we've got Forgate that's, and this will get into finishing later too, but you know, they're doing uh, in, inventive things with their bourbon and they don't have a story and they're not trying to make up some story. I think what we led into with Woodford's popularity is everyone tried to make up a story and some of them just don't have it. And the truth is you just, you don't always need a story like that. That's my two cents on that. As in, you don't need a story as in history or you just need a story in general. Kind of well, you need a story in general for sure. You need you need something to say about how what you do is innovative or different or you know whatever it is that you're doing. You've got to tell that story. I don't think you need a historical story, and I think that's what BBC and New Riff and Peerless. I think that's what they're all finding and they're embracing. I know for a while Peerless tried to say that they weren't shut down during Prohibition and they had all this nonsense. Um, but I think they've distanced themselves from that now. So I, I, I like to see, despite loving the historical side of it, that people are realizing you don't need that historical story. And even if you look at, say, Bardstown Bourbon Company, for example, you know, the experience, they have the vintage library, you know, where you yeah. can you can get that connection. Um, I mean, out for Pursuit Palooza, for example, on the way to Bardstown, I stopped at a few distilleries, um, just swung through and Bardstown was packed by comparison. You know, uh, a lot of people there, lively attitude, lively energy, you know, they built that on purpose. I mean, they designed that to have that experience in a very, in a very modern way, you know, so you have these old kind of historic distilleries and, you know, historic facilities that were, they were built for production. They weren't built for today's experience. Yeah. And that's why we're seeing, you know, these massive expansions and people basically building out what Bardstown did from the beginning, because they're seeing that, yeah, the history is great and it helps project the brand and that lets you peel back the layers, you know, like Buffalo Trace has, but at the same time, they want to draw in consumers. They want people to be there and to visit, you know, when it's an arms race to be, to get people to go to your distillery when they visit Kentucky and experience that so that when they go and when they go home and a month later, a year later, whatever, they still feel connected to the brand when they go to the store. You know, it's interesting. I went to a weekend bachelor party with a group of guys over the weekend. I brought like 16 bottles with me 
and I put them all out and I was like, just look at the bottles. Like which one of those like draws your attention? And I was surprised what was kind of unanimous and it happened to be a taller bottle and it looked a certain way, but it was the one that drew the attention. I was like, that's interesting because that's not something I usually think of. And there's a group of guys that doesn't really, they don't really drink too much bourbon. And I'm thinking they're going to to stores and seeing hundreds of things on the shelves and which one of those things is going to draw their eye and which one's going to draw them in. And then a lot of times when they do drink something and find it, they'll kind of stick with the same thing. They're not as, not going to explore as much as somebody like I do or somebody like you guys or the folks listening do in that sense too. So there's a lot of brand captivity you want to get with people. History helps, but I think there's a lot of ways to do it. And I think history too, and you kind of see this with like beer or like wine history and like being like an, an everyday brand can also hurt you too, because I can't tell many times people come here and, you know, they're like, well, I don't want to go to heaven Hill or I don't want to go to makers. You know, I want to go somewhere unique, you know, somewhere new, somewhere fresh, somewhere cool that people don't know about, you know, what's the next hot and upcoming thing. And it's like, Okay, you know, Jim Beam, it's right down the road. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Haven't heard of her. Yeah. And so you kind of have, you know, that angle as well is like how there's an opportunity if you don't have that history to be, you know, kind of that, you know, mom and pop, a smaller brand that people can connect to as well. You know, not just as big behemoth, you know, I think of like my worst wine tour was cake bread, you know, at Napa because it was like this big factory, you know, everybody's there, you know, it's just, it just wasn't that like intimate, but you know, my favorite wine experiences were the small intimate ones where you got to meet the, you know, the purveyors and the, the winemakers and this and that. And, uh, I don't know. So there's, there's opportunities too, if you don't have that, you know, the big name recognition in history as well. In in history though, it's, it's like a drug for a lot of these distillers. They can't keep away from making up their history. And that's actually what I had circled in this article. I thought the article was great. Um, I mean, mostly around the edges, there are a few issues, but the thing that I circled is under the title of making up history. So kind of the topic we're on and Preston is supposedly telling them, and, and this article is reiterating that Pappy has had four generations of bourbon making in Frankfort, Kentucky. Can anyone say that's true? I mean, a hundred percent false, right? Absolutely, a hundred percent false. Blending uh, ish. No, uh, four generations of bourbon making in Frankfort, Kentucky. False. And to be clear, they didn't move to Frankfort until oh two. What, what what was the right? Yeah, I forget which year it was, but yeah, that, yeah. that's exactly right. There and their, you know, their most famous award-winning one, of course, was Stutzel Weller. So it's. I mean, not not to knock what they are putting out, but but why stretch when you're when you've got the name recognition like Pappy? Why do you have to tell someone and get it printed in an article that you're four generations of bourbon making? They're they're sourcing it. <laughs> I think one of my favorite distillery tours, and and I won't reveal who it was, but it was a uh, um, I was with a group of buddies, and you know the the guy doing the tour just kept saying and as far as i know we are the only one to do this and as far as i know we're the only one to do x y and z and finally my brother looks at me and goes if i preface everything with as far as i know i can just say (laughs) Say whatever whatever i want (laughs) yeah and that's kind of a lot of of gray area yeah like what a lot of uh you know if you go on 
tours and there's nothing wrong wrong with major brands i love them you know i love a lot of what they produce but uh you know everyone's the first one to distill since prohibition or or the longest uh distilling company or you, you know whatever it is but it's like i think the consumer's just not chasing that as much anymore it, it's still important it still plays a role for sure like i don't think we'll ever lose that that lore and kind of uh you know folksiness but at the end of the day, I just don't think that's what consumers care as much about. You know, it, it, while it was 100% five, 10 years ago, it's at like 60, 70% now. It, it is great. Like Nick talked about, there's literally, you know, I was having this talk conversation with Herb from Bardstone Burber Company. And he's like, you know, so many people tell us because he's in charge of their sales. And he's like, you have the easiest job in the world. You know, you get to sell bourbon and it just sells. And he goes, and he looked at, pointed at the bar and he said, look how many bottles are up there. You know, they're all different. How do I go and tell someone that mine's better than the 200 that are up there, you know, and that's what you got to figure out. And there's some things that work for some brands and some, you know, it's, it's, you just got to find what's your niche and hope people latch on, you know, but creating that user experience, I think where people can come in, see you, see how you do things is really important. I think and can help grow a brand astronomically versus just, as we're learning, being an internet brand that, you know, uh, you try to, I don't know, it's having a, I think having an experience is, can go a long way for a brand and building that connection. Well, I mean, your connection though, is you guys. I mean, that's, that's the connection that that's the end is that you have the connection through the podcast, you know, and through your connections in Kentucky and people, you know, and so that's where like Pursuit Palooza, I mean, that's the connection, you know, seeing you guys talk about it. That's, where you, where you get that, you know, so that's what works for you guys. You don't need, you know, the story of somebody's great grandfather who discovered bourbon while he was sleeping. You know, I mean, you've, you've got it right through the connection with people. So I think it's, it works in some ways, the history, because it is something that people can kind of relate to in a broad stroke and you can kind of spread that pretty far. Whereas a lot of brands now they're, they're looking for a closer, tighter connection. If they have a loyal following, it works because there are so many. And there's so much demand for it that you don't need to sell to everybody. You just need to find a big enough crowd and a big enough audience that feels connected to what you're doing and that can work. Yeah. I will say Al Young and Jim Rutledge did sign my grandfather's retirement. Uh, he was, <laughs> my, my grandfather was a maintenance man for four roses for we have a 30 years. Connection. So, uh, he wrote on their, they wrote on his retirement barrel head. So I do have some history that I probably won't use for our brand, but I'm just kidding. It's exactly. Good. I mean, it, yeah, don't use it for the brand. You guys got the celebrity and I mean, you guys are all doing the the approach where it's it's personable and it's innovative. So I'd, I'd like to see that change from you guys and everyone else. As far as I know, this is the greatest roundtable by far. So we'll just start there. But there's also a, a good part that was in here that kind of talked about how the stories are being made up by people that aren't even being close to the brands. And I actually had an opportunity today. Uh, I was selecting, uh, doing a private barrel selection over at Maker's Mark, had a chance to sit there and talk to Jane Bowie and Denny Potter. And we were just kind of just talking, just talking shop about different things. And they kind of talked about how they are sort of a go between kind of between the bean counters, the ones that are looking to say, okay, well, if we did this, we could probably shave $10 million off a year if we just you know, raised our proof level or we changed to this type of grain. And those are the ones that 
have to kind of be the the guardians of the brand because there's a lot of people that are in between, not just inside the distillery, but outside up to the top levels of the corporate marketing that are trying to influence, actually change what's happening. Not only just changing the product, but they're trying to change the story at the same exact time too. So they are trying to also create, as Brian alluded to earlier, those are the ones that are interjecting a little bit of false history into a lot of these things, trying to figure out what is the angle that we can play on. I think the greatest angle that we can look at to marketing is all the recent bookers batches, because there is just like something that it's like, oh, it's an oven or it's like this thing that they're just trying to like latch onto. And they're just creating a history that are people are just getting riled up about bookers batches. I think that's probably the new wave that I've seen in, in just the bookers side alone of of just trying to find something that people can sort of latch on to and, and kind of find a a reason to go out and and talk about it some more i do like though i i am fat i mean I'm, I'm a sucker for those i love the booker batches i think they work well and i love trying the different ones and like and because it's a local thing and booker knew so many people i know like the last couple have been people i know so it's like i gotta go get one you know to to support them but uh i do i do appreciate those that's people you know and people just love you know they were smart to do that because it not only now it took bookers from being you know a huge you know those batches are probably i don't know fifty thousand bottles and they reduced them down to smaller and people, it just made them more scarce, you know, doing those batch numbers and people love scarcity. And it was brilliant on their part to do that, to make those stories connections and kind of give it each batch a little rarity. Whereas before Booker's was like a, you know, a 60 to 70,000 bottle batch, you know, each year. It's kind of taking the concept of single barrels and just expanding it. You know, each single barrel has some kind of very small, tight, group that somehow feels connected with it and they're just taking that saying well we have to take that on a on a bigger scale so we're doing a batch that's kind of deliver that same unique experience in a larger and more marketable type of way cecil can you get us a round table batch <laughs> yes i think blake's the only one that's actually Blake's, been on a selection. Yeah, He's the one know, at the right? inside that we need to. I, I will never not buy a booker's batch that's the one that like got me really hooked into bourbon Love everything about it. Snuck into a roundtable uh, pick, and yeah, they will not be doing a bourbon roundtable pick anytime soon. I don't think. <laughs> God, if uh, I keep talking about their, their marketing, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I'll text no, Freddie after the that, show. That's one. Let's even if they do. said Blake, we hate you, I'd still go out and buy Booker's tomorrow, just because <laughs> I do like it that much. <laughs> Freddie, Freddie is a fan of Pursuit United, so maybe I can bribe him with uh, a few more bottles. Let's get, do it. His, Whatever yeah. it takes. <laughs> For sure. Uh, you know, I think to kind of wrap up this section, we feel that I think it's pretty unanimous that there's there's got to be some level uh, of between and you've got to figure out how does your brand really, really lean on something. If if you have that connection of history and you can prove it and it's not made up or it doesn't seem like so far fetched, I think that's something that you could probably really work on as an angle versus something that if if you're coming up into this and you're trying to figure out how do we create and experience where a couple people that were buying barrels were trying to create a brand and try to create a label were whiskey enthusiasts. How do you kind of create that story? And so you've got to figure out a way that you don't lean on that, but instead you kind of lean on that that modern experience that maybe is focused not just around the history, but it's around process, it's around taste, it's around sensory, it's around these different kinds of aspects that is more about the whiskey 
rather than the history uh, of it. And I just kind of give a shout out to Brandy here because she kind of put a good example and says that the history can pull you in, but the the master distiller can kind of keep you following. And so there's always a great example of people at pretty much every major distillery that become the face of the brand. Those are the ones that, uh, at least for us whiskey geeks, that we follow and we kind of hang on every word that they're saying, whether it's in press releases or whether it's batches that they're releasing or whether it's kind of the products that they're working on. And we kind of look at that and as them sort of being gospels and, and spokespeople of the particular brand. And maybe maybe you don't need the history. Maybe you just need that spokesperson. So I guess that's a good question for you all is that if you don't have the history, do you just need a spokesperson for your brand to kind yes. of be that be that person that is the face of it? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus Magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. Maybe you don't need the history. Maybe you just need that spokesperson. So I guess that's a good question for you all is that if you don't have the history, do you just need a spokesperson for your brand to kind of be that be that person that is the face of it. Totally. You need Ross and Squib. You need two people <laughs> to build your history. They give you the good whiskey and the good branding and the history. And, and the, the jokes can't stop at that point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I couldn't help myself. Sorry. <laughs> okay. But it's a, it's a question for you all. I mean, do you feel that there, there needs to be a face for the brand or does it something that maybe the whiskey can just kind of speak on its own? Is there a good example of that? I think we do need a face. You you need a connection and maybe it's not a face. Maybe it's a story, but you know, there's always outliers with anything, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think you got to have that person that you kind of look to, you listen, you follow on, or at least that's the easiest route to do it, to make a connection with the customer. I mean, I'm just kind of going through my head of all the distillers that I really like. And usually there's a face connected to that. I just picked up a, where I started here, some Blade and Bow. There's really nobody that's a face of Blade and Bow by any means. They've got some brand ambassadors, but it's it's one of those brands as well that you typically don't have that. 
let's say the Bardstown Bourbon Company side, I think the only people that that we kind of know about are the ones that we talk about, but they're not necessarily the ones that are always out there. They're not, it's not a Freddie no by any means, right? So I think there's, there's a, it's, it's kind of counterbalanced there. Well, two different, different tools in the tool belt, you know, in one case, it's put a face behind it or it naturally emerges and evolves um, because that's how the brand is. In other cases, it's, you know, Bardstown to focus on the experience, you know, do everything right and modern from, you know, from the ground up. And, you know, you go there and you feel connected, even though you don't necessarily think of a face, you know, you definitely feel like connected to the process and good time, you know, good drinks, good whiskey, um, you know, definitely would buy it again. And then they, they do a lot of collaboration. So you kind of keep seeing them pop up, you know, uh, time and time again. So they're kind of touching you, you know, that way as well. It's hard because yep. you, if you, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, Brian. Yeah, go ahead. I want to hear you first. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's hard because uh, Jackie, you know, and um, Marianne were two great people that helped elevate brand, a brand, you know, and then they leave. And so it's like, what do you do? You know, they, they helped build up that brand, but then they, they leave and you're left with, you don't know what. And like, I've had this conversation with CEOs and whatnot of, you know, in the industry, like, do you make distillers or tasters or this or that sign NDAs? So that are not NDAs, non-competes, you know, cause they, you know, really take everything, build it up, you know, make themselves the face of it. And then they just leave. Um, I don't know. It's, it, I, I guess it depends on the personality of who you have running your operations, you know, like Bardstown, you know, it's Steve Nally who really doesn't care about being in the limelight. He's like, just, you know, I, I'm going to go, eat my lunch and don't bother me, you know, <laughs> drink his old passions for lunch and then go, go <laughs> eat his huge charcuterie board. And <laughs> that sounds know. good. That sounds like good lunch. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. That's, that's tough. And, and I was going to have a similar point. So I, I actually am glad you went first because my point was it's, it's risky to, if you're a small brand or maybe even a big brand, but it's risky to put all your eggs in the personality basket because people leave as, as they should, and they should try different things. Um, but so you see, you see some of the distilleries having to shift away from a personality to an experience. And I think Castle and Key has done that really, really, really well. I mean, they have such a great experience when, when you go there now and they pivoted, uh, real nicely. So it's, it's a risk if you're small and you kind of hitch up to a personality. Or in, as a kind of additional comment to that in the cases where the personality is largely in ownership of the brand too. And they're, you know, catapulting the brand. I think of, um, I think it's brothers bond, the two guys who were in, um, I think it was the vampire diaries, two actors that started that brand. You know, it's a 80, 82 proof, something like that. Pretty straightforward bourbon, you know, but if you look at their following, it's tremendous. I mean, they have just an, absolutely tremendous following on social media and they've gotten so much attention in a very very short period with with what is a pretty basic bourbon product but they've gotten that in front of so many people because they had the audience already at this point so that certainly i'm sure i'm sure helped them well it's that ross and squid magic you know? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> that's all right it's, if you look at the socials there's just a bunch of fire emojis on every single comment so it's 
that's if we want to talk about we'll save that for another discussion a little bit later so <laughs> i think we hit a nerve with kenny i'd like to uh go through that a <laughs> little more double down on that one <laughs> yes let's yeah. i think tonight's a per why, why there's no better in time in the present kenny <laughs> kenny's been dropping the fire emojis on there I think. uh yeah you know me that's that's all i try to do try to keep the hype train rolling around but let's let's not talk about that instead <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about our second half of this, and that's kind of talking about barrel finishes. And this is because I feel in the past probably probably two to three years, we've seen barrel finishes really explode. We all know that, should I say, I feel that Angel's Envy was probably the first one that really catapulted barrel finishes into the mainstay because for the most part, everybody said, oh, I love this bourbon called Angel's Envy. And a lot of us are like, well, you know, it's not really a bourbon. It's actually a bourbon finish in port wine barrels and so on and so forth, blah, blah, blah. But we've seen this now transcend to pretty much every single brand. There is not a single, should I say not every single brand, but there are a lot of brands out there that are doing any type of wine finished, uh, triple second champagne finished. I mean, you name it. There are a lot of different things that people are starting to experiment with. And that's great because... We've talked about this for a few years, saying that this is going to start pushing the bounds of what is a flavor profile, what is a bourbon. And I think for a lot of us, we're also kind of broadening our horizon of, okay, what are different flavors and things that we could look at? So I'm going to put it out to you all is that why do you think we are so attracted to finished bourbons? Oh, I'll briefly go first. I think it's because we, we always want something new. Our palates get bored. We're always looking for something unique. You know, it. You know, the big guys make fantastic whiskey, but drinking the same mash bill and ten different ricks with ten different labels gets boring. And you know, doing the finishes and or different experimentations or whatnot really, you know, pushes your palate into new directions, and you experience these new flavors at first I was totally against it. You know, I'm like, that's you're hiding something you're trying to cover up a flaw or this or that. But what I've learned is that the people that do it well have really helped elevate the spirit. Now I do think like some of the toasting, charring and all this stuff has gone maybe a little too far, but done right. I think it's fantastic. But the wine finishes, I, I'm a big fan of like Forgate does a fantastic job. Blake, is about to do a really fantastic job with, I'm sure this release is going to be great. Um, <laughs> Hopefully we'll, we'll, let's see no. we're on pins and needles waiting for it. Uh, you know, Trey has done a great job with finishing at Jefferson's. There's just so much flavor that can be um, brought out in the spirit that uh, I think it's fun. And it, as a whiskey geek, you want new and interesting flavors. And then I guess another question is as a whiskey geek with all these new and interesting flavors, is that the point because you become kind of numb to a bunch of like wine finishes like okay we've had enough port like what's next i mean is is there is there a point where you just get a, a i guess a, a little bit of you know just kind of bored of the same thing over and over yeah I, th I think that's a good question i think that's i think that's why blake's finish is kind of interesting because you're you kind of look again and you're like what but i feel like i have to try that you know um so many things in you know, in my collection taste very similar, you know, bourbon has that narrow kind of band of flavor, like Ryan talked about. So the finishing really expanded that. And I think it also draws people in who are familiar with something else already. They like rum, they haven't had whiskey, you know, you give them something that's rum finished and they're like, okay, yeah, I can, I could see myself getting into this. So I think it, it pulls people over to whiskey as well, 
which is really cool. And then they might, they might start there and then they're going the opposite direction where then they're going to go find the purest stuff and get it, you know, start to understand what it really means to be a bourbon. And unlike us who maybe started the other way and now we're drawn maybe away from that to try new things, they're going to come in that way and then be drawn to bourbon. And it is, you know, it's, it's cool because it is, you know, the, the thing that's made here in the United States. So we all kind of have that unique connection to bourbon that you can't really say the same about anything else. So it's kind of got that natural staying power, even though you get these deviations of unique finishes, there's still this kind of base bourbon element to it that we all feel connected to. Let's definitely have Blake go last on this one. So <laughs> the king so of finished bourbons, the, the king of finished bourbons uh, justifies you know, existence on this one. I, I, I agree with all that. It's, it's kind of looking for the next thing and you, you kind of want to experiment. And so even, I kind of see this as doing stupid things at home, like trying to fat wash your bourbon, which I did. And it was the worst thing I've I've ever concocted. I mean, I had to dump it, but, uh, but it's, it's things to try and you see something that's even the big guys try the orange carousel. And so you try it and you know, maybe not so good. And, and some gin ones I don't like because of all the botanicals, but you, you try those just to see what it's going to be like, because I, I think you guys are right. You've, you've got house profiles from a lot of the big distilleries. So you want to just try something different, but, but Blake, I'm, uh, that's all I got to say about it. I'm really interested in what you're going to say. No. Uh, so I think we should get rid of all finishes completely. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, my thinking on it is, is kind of aligned with Ryan where, I mean, you think about it 10, 15 years ago, what differentiation did we have in the industry proof age and distillery? And there were about four to five different distilleries making bourbon. So um, yes, that has expanded, but I, I think just playing around with different blends and finishes is still something new. And yes, there's always a burnout. Like it, it's bound to happen where, and everything's not for everyone, but you know, like I've always said with these seal box finishes, we don't know what bourbon in a champagne barrel tastes like because nobody's tried it. So maybe it's terrible. Maybe we never want to go back to it. But I always enjoy just, you know, changing things up a little bit. And I still think it's going to be a small part of the category with all the different finishes. But at the end of the day, it, it, it's another ingredient in the blending process and there's so many different ways to finish. You know, some people have so much residual liquid in there. You're basically just adding flavoring. Some people go dry barrels. And so it, it's, it really highlights the blending aspect of things. And that's what I do really enjoy and like about it is there is more craftsmanship to it than people think on the outset of it. So yeah, I'm all for people pushing, pushing things forward and not to say that they're you know, if you just like straight bourbon, th there's plenty of great options out there. But if you want to try something a little bit different, I think that's important to have people who are willing to do that as well. I'm glad you Blake. said that, Blake, because uh, it is an art. Like we're playing with finishing and this and that. And I mean, you have to stay on top of it and like you have to taste it. You have to know exactly when to pull the wood, when it peaks and valleys, you know, you could pull it too soon. It's like I didn't realize. And I think just going through the process has made me realize or gain much more of appreciation for it, that it's, it's a true talent, you know, it's, it's a distilling and whatnot. It's, you know, very scientific. It's a very repeatable process. Finishing is like, there's, it's another variable that 
is a wild card that you have no idea what's going to happen. And so it's a huge risk and the people that do it well, I, I have such great respect for. And so, and two, I think finishing stuff, obviously we all like drinking and need on the rocks, but it makes some great cocktails, you know, some interesting cocktails. Um, it adds just that another depth of flavor, layer of flavor that, you know, really pushes like a fun, makes a fun Manhattan or a fun old fashioned, you know, that, that you just don't get out of a, you know, a standard rye or bourbon mash bill. But Ryan, did you like the uh, Tabasco finished for in your in bloody? Oh, I did. I've had the dickle. I actually did like that for the did you? the but, <laughs> the hot dickle. Yeah, the hot dickle. I had kind of like that too, Ryan. That was that was good for cocktails. I we'll say like that it. the craft beer scene kind of shows that like there seems to be no shortage of demand for trying different things. You know, there's always something new, and you know, I always feel like I want to grab one of the new different craft beers that's out there, you know, a lot of one-off runs and things like that. So it makes sense that that would translate over to bourbon as well. So question for Blake, if you, you said you don't know what it's going to taste like, so it could be awful. Do you then finish it in something else or to try to fix it or do you release? It? So it's, it's honestly a risk, you know, if I'm being, I've had a drink, so I'll be more honest than I normally would, but we'll no, have another I mean, drink then. And let's be real it, honest though. It's, is a little scary of a process playing around with some of those because you're dumping a lot of money in bourbon into these barrels and saying like, look, I think this is going to work out. Um, and, and that's like the seal box approach. And, you know, what I, a lot of money to me is like what beam or, you know, one of the big guys probably spends in, you know, printer paper in a week. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just kind of like, Hey, if, if it doesn't work out, we'll, we'll put it in something else and we won't use it in this blend has always been my approach. Um, we've gotten extremely lucky, I think on, on a lot of ours, but that's, that's just the risk. You know, I'm not going to throw something out there and just be like, Hey, it is what it is. If you like it, great. If you don't, you know, I want it to taste good and kind of also tell that same story. So it's, it's a high risk, high reward, I guess. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's always the approach I've, I've looked at it. And to kind of dovetail onto a few things that have been said there is that as you start thinking about a lot of barrel finishes that are out there on the market and who they're coming from the producer side, because there are some bad actors out there. Don't get me wrong. There are going to be some people that are recharging barrels or just throwing flavors in and you don't know what's going on there. And you look at the label and it's got 14 different flavors on it. You're like, there's no way you were able to finish in all these different kinds of barrels. So it's really kind of hard not only just to look from a bad actor perspective, and that might come from sort of a, a brand that's maybe lesser known versus one that is, you know, very well known. But there is another great comment that came in the chat earlier is that some people said that finishing is a great way to just cover up a young whiskey. And it's kind of true to a degree too, is that you can take some of these, you know, two, three, four, five, six years that still have not yet to mature and really make that turn but you can finish it, you can double barrel it, you can toast it. And a lot of these methods are something that kind of pushes it over that next edge that you don't sit there and need to wait until it is going to kind of hit that maturity point. So there is there is sort of a, a risk factor when you're looking at where you're going to purchase and we're going to get it from. And so understanding of, of, you know, you should probably read Breaking Bourbon's website on on every single review. So you actually know exactly what what kind of went into this. Like, what do these guys think? Because I really think that you have to have sort of your bearings on only because there's so much out there on the market that you can get caught flat footed and you're not really going to know what you're going to be 
having because there might be some brand you're like, oh, it's got some finish on it. Or it's got this. It's 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 a honey barrel because God forbid everybody's got a honey barrel nowadays. And so at that point, you have to be kind of careful and, and be cautious of, of where you're spending your dollars because you're probably going to get burned at some point, too. Yep. Yeah, 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 no, I mean, I, I think that's that's kind of a part of it, unfortunately. And that's where I, I wish the TTB would come down with a little bit stricter. So anytime something goes into a secondary barrel, it's basically um, a spirit uh, specialty. So or distilled spirit specialty, whatever that category is. So that's encompassing of a lot of things. And I wish there were a true finishing barrel category to make sure it's just straight bourbon, straight rye, whatever it may be finished in X barrel with less than whatever amount of residual liquid and uh, flavoring um, because you don't want that. And that's where it's kind of the wild West, but ultimately that comes down to do you trust the producer? Do you trust your own palate? I think we've all had plenty of finishes where, you taste it and you're like, there's just no way this got to this level of sweetness and everything else without some help from outside of that barrel. But yeah, so, you know, it's trial and error as a consumer as well. That, that kind of brings up a question. I just shared an article in the chat too, uh, kind of to Kenny's point and talking about this and what labels say, but we discussed the idea of producers labeling something, for example, straight bourbon finished in, xyz you know for example there's a lot of discussion of whether straight bourbon should even be on that because it is a distilled spirit specialty so there's some that would say you know i i think you're kind of maybe hurting that straight bourbon name because there's gonna be confusion because it at one point was straight bourbon but now who knows what you've done to it and you haven't really had to disclose that versus the other side of it which is well i, I have some basis of what straight bourbon taste like and so knowing that it's that and not just whiskey which could be anything you know i'm i want to know more about what what's in there so i don't know if you guys have kind of thoughts on how you like that labeling to read when you see these kind of finishes do you like more detail or do you like kind of leave that bourbon name leave straight bourbon out of it it's a good question Ooh, um, that's a great question I, I would probably lean to leave straight bourbon out of it even though well it's, it's kind of like you have to have all these pillars, right? You have pillars and you say like, what does a bucket fit into? Or, you know, or should I say buckets? And like, what does this fit into? And of course, if you have straight bourbon, well, it's still straight bourbon. And then it becomes something else. Is it still straight bourbon? Well, it's technically a straight bourbon before it started. I kind of feel that what they have right now with inside of the TTB regulations and the rules that it's pretty well aligned. And I do agree that the way that they have it inside of the TTTBM to say that if you are going to say you have to have straight bourbon finished in XYZ, blah, 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 blah. It all has to be the same font size, the same font type, and it all has to be the same kind of way. Like you just can't say straight bourbon and then in 0.02 font way underneath of it, you know, finished in blah, 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 blah. So I feel that they have done a, a good job of being able to kind of classify, or should I say, be able to put that on, on the label so consumers can see that. However, for some reason, the general consumer still doesn't know or doesn't care because I'll go and ask my uncle what his favorite bourbon is and he'll say Angel's Envy. And I'll have to go out and say, well, it's not technically not a bourbon, blah, blah, blah. But that is kind of how it all ends up being. But I do think that it's a it's just marketing at that point. Like if somebody just does a great job of marketing. They're able to kind of get past that boundary. You get past that 
even if it's a stigma, because some people just don't care about it. They built an amazing brand on port finished whiskey and port finished bourbon, and they've been able to kind of ride that and keep it going. Yeah, I, I totally agree on the on the font size. I've just seen too many that the the biggest words are straight bourbon whiskey and then finished in some whatever it is, really small. So that that's got to be the key. It's got to be transparency on on really all these things that we've been talking about tonight. You know, whether it's the historical stuff, making things up, or you know what they're doing, what the processes are, what the marketing is, what you're finished in. It's all about transparency. That's where I'm going to come down. Well, I'm just waiting to see bourbon finished and margaritas because that's going to be the next thing because <laughs> we're going to need it now that now that margaritas are taking over. All right. There was one last question that I saw on here from JR, and I just want to kind of put it out there as a quick one that says, how do you feel about double oak and toasted oak popularity? Is it here to stay? Uh, no, after the barrel shortage, right? I mean, you're wasting those <laughs> barrels. True. They can't, they can't toast their they, second devil barrel anything anymore. That's right. But it, uh, other than that, I mean, I'm, I'm a fan still. So I, I say, keep them coming. Yeah. I think the toast to me is, uh, I, I, in general, you know, won't say every time, but in, in general, like the profile that it adds. So do I want to see every distillery and brand have a toasted series? I don't know. Maybe not, but maybe so too, because each product's different. It's going to interact differently with the toast. There's so many different levels that you can use on the toast. So I think that's one that's going to be here to stay. You know, Mictor's kind of kicked that thing off um, pretty well back in, what was that, 2016-ish with the their toasted barrel series. And i fell in love with it ever since then. So I, I hope it's one that's here to stay. I think it, 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 it adds a different level of, you know, taste without getting too outside of what we think of as bourbon, you know, some of the wine and rum and whatever it may be finishes can, they can get a little funky, but if you want to say true bourbon profiles, just amped up a little bit, caramelization, that kind of stuff, the toasted in double Oak is a good way to go. And if the producers just want to throw money away and just, not just use one barrel, but use two. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Just no, it's, it's risky. I mean, it's risky yeah, too how because it might, is that? it might make it worse. You know, you're going to pay a, not much. Know, a barrel's like more. 250 bucks. But but your time and energy to do all that and, you, you know, you're going to lose some along the way too, potentially. I don't know. I'm drinking it. I'm drinking a red line toasted right now. And it's very <laughs> you see, you're part <laughs> so of the problem. Nick. It's very good. So what can I say? I like it. Yeah. Golly, you just fell right into that, didn't you? No, I think Toasted's here to stay. And we've talked to Andrew Wiebrink from ISC and everybody else that's are are in the Cooperage ecosystem. And a lot of them are trying even more crazier ways to do types of barrels. And people are going to finish them in different kinds of things. I think this is just still going to be the beginning of what it is. Even though we talked about some wild things, I, I have yet, I don't think we've seen the wildest thing yet. And We'll kind of we'll see what 2023 brings us in the future, but we'll, we'll go ahead. We'll, we'll see what Blake comes up with. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, God, triple second champagne. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, yeah. We get we got something real big for 2023. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be waiting on the edge of our seat for that one. So let's go ahead and wrap it up. But I do want to give a shout out real quick to Michael Brown, who says he's been listening to us ever since episode one, and this is the first time he's ever tuned in live, and he's had his mind blown by seeing our faces in real time as we're speaking here. So really cool to kind of see that happen, but let's go ahead. We'll wrap it up the same way we got started. So Nick, I'll let you go first. Yeah. So uh great as always, great chat, great comments. 
Nick with uh, Breaking Bourbon. Check us out, breakingbourbon.com. All the socials at Breaking Bourbon. And uh, cheers, y'all. All right, Brian. All right. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, I really did enjoy this. Uh, as always, though, um, with number 70, Brian with Sipping Corn and Bourbon Justice. Find me at either of those places. Great time, guys. Bourbon Justice. I really wish you had a, a TV show. I mean, you should be. be. kind of. Let's let's do one. <laughs> Why not? I, I just need a producer and money. Yeah. Who's, who's the judge, though? I guess that's what we need to figure out. Yeah. Okay. Let me think we'll, on we'll that. We'll figure that one out. Yeah. And Blake, wrap it up. Yeah, I'm Blake from uh, Sealbox and Bourboner. So always fun to be here. Thanks again. Thanks for letting me uh, plug our our crazy fun experiments we have going on. So find me at all the Sealbox and Bourboner Instagrams, Facebooks, websites, all the good stuff. Thanks again. For sure. And Ryan got bored, so he left. So I'm just going to go ahead and wrap it up. So thank you all once again for joining on. We had about 120 people at one point concurrently watching this so we're probably a little bit over 200 in and out so it's great to see all the interaction people commenting everywhere so thank you so much for coming in being a part of this live action as we kind of talk about a good potpourri of bourbon topics but make sure you follow all these guys on all the socials follow bourbon pursuit on facebook twitter instagram tiktok all those great places and subscribe and tell a friend leave a review all those great things hit the thumbs up buttons you know smash it whatever the kids say nowadays but with that let's go ahead we'll close it out thank you all once again and we'll see you all next week